Welcome to the Deconstructing Data podcast and broadcast. I'm Jesse Lezak, Fractional CMO at BDEX, along with David Wellborn, BDEX's CTO. We're lucky to have you here. How's it going, DW? Very good. Um, There's always something happening in the marketplace to keep you honest. So uh, every day it's a new adventure. Yes, and we always have great discussions when you're able to um, step in. So thank you for stepping in last minute for David Finkelstein, who's normally co-host here. Um, Unfortunately, not feeling the best today, so we're sending him well wishes. Um, But today, we have the pleasure to welcome on another esteemed guest. So we're we're thrilled to welcome on Christina Inge author of Marketing Metrics, Leverage Analytics and Data to Optimize Marketing Strategies. So that's right at the alley of what we talk about here on Deconstructing Data. And she is an expert in leveraging web data and AI for marketing. And Christina brings insights into innovation and data strategies for today's dynamic marketing landscape. So um, let me go ahead and bring her in here. Hello. I'm honored to be here. Hello. Thanks so much for being here, Christina. It's great to be here. Thanks again for having me on the show. Yeah, it's it's a pleasure to have you here. Um, uh, could you please uh, uh, give the listeners here a little bit of background of how you went from education uh, all the way to being a marketing guru that you are now for for a minority-owned businesses in the Boston area. Um, I would love to tell you a little bit more about it. Um, So I actually started out as a journalist. I was in journalism for the first couple of years of my career when I graduated in um, (laughs) the late late 1990s. um, And so really one of the things that I I worked on, I I did a lot of different like service journalism, education-related journalism. And then I was referred by one of my editors to do some ad copywriting for one of a publication's editors where I was a writer. And I really enjoyed it. I found that I was successful at it. So I spent many years in um, communications, actually, initially doing a lot of trainings after a while, but also really doing ad copywriting, website copywriting, uh, developing copy for different clients as a freelancer. And then I decided I needed to get more technical credentials under my belt. And I'd always wanted to teach. So I went and I got a master's in instructional technology, which is essentially designing technologies for educational contexts like online learning systems. I got that degree. And to be totally frank, I have never in my entire life worked full-time as an instructional technologist to this day. I learned a lot about user experience design. And then I went straight into technology marketing, uh, first as a market researcher, and then as a marketing manager and a VP of marketing for tech startups in the education space. As part of that, I ultimately became an educator. I now teach at Northeastern University, Harvard University, and Brandeis University. I teach marketing at all three places. However, I've now, it really wasn't so much a trajectory from education to marketing. It was more a trajectory from communications through learning both UX and in an education context to then doing marketing 
both for educational organizations as well as other mission-driven organizations. As part of that, now I teach at Northeastern University where I am the founding creative director of Husky Communications, which is the student-run marketing agency of Northeastern. It is a great program. I highly recommend it to anybody who wants to go back to school and get their master's in communications because what we do it's all part of the Northeastern way of doing things which I love and I'm so honored to teach there is we consult with women-owned, veteran-owned, person-of-color-owned small businesses in the New England region and honestly globally to help them do marketing and students, master's degree students, build a full marketing campaign for our clients. Uh, that's what I do is my side hustle. My day job is I run Thoughtlight, which is a digital marketing agency headquartered here in the Boston area that I founded in 2014. And we work with mission-driven organizations to do everything from their communications to their web development to their SEO. And we are what I call ourselves a full-stack digital marketing agency. Wow. Sometimes I sleep. Hey, I was going to say, it's like, what do you do in your spare time? Uh, I rescue dogs. <laughs> okay. Really? Do you? I do. I have three. Oh, that's awesome. What kind of dog? Um, a pit bull helmet, a dachshund mix, and a Jack Russell mix. Guess who the aggressive one is? The dachshund. The dachshund. No, Jack Russell. No. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. That dog can levitate. I don't know if it's just me, but someone has a mic that's like either close to something. I don't know, but it's got a little bit of a, a little frequency that I'm hearing. Um, if you want to check that out. But in the meantime, I'm just going to pop up our first topic, which is marketing metrics in the age of chat GPT. Yes. So I would love to hear your perspective on this, especially since, um, you know, you are the expert in marketing analytics. What's your take on chat GPT? I think that when it comes to my original field that I come from, and again, where I still do a fair amount of teaching and consulting and communications, I think that it is going to cause significant disruption. I think that on the lower end, we're starting to see some freelance opportunities give way to people deciding that they're going to just have chat GPT do it. Um, however, I think in marketing analytics, it's a net positive. Because in marketing analytics, I can give you an example of the client that we're working with right now. And by the way, we're joined by a studio audience here in, in my offices. We actually have one of our Husky Communications clients here, as well as a few folks from the Husky Communications team. And it's actually a great example of how ChatGPT is actually helpful for those of us doing analytics because... We're working with an organization, Sit, Stay Forever, and they have a lot, they're an organic, sustainable pet um, pro cleaning product, pet snacks and beds, all of it um, toxin-free and sustainable. They have a lot of really good reviews, to give you a really concrete example. Measuring what those trends are within those reviews can be incredibly tedious if you're a small organization and you don't have access to some of the top analytics tools out there. What are people saying about the product? What do they like the most? What do they like the least about it? We were able to use a chat GPT plugin using GPT-4 and a plugin that you can add into GPT-4 that scraped all of Sit, Stay Forever's reviews and came up with the top things that customers are saying about these great products of our client that we have here at Husky Communications. It took like two, two minutes. 
And with that, we were quickly able to identify using ChatGPT, what are the things people really love about the Sit Stay Forever products? What are some of the things that they have as concerns that they don't like that you might want to address? And what are some of the core parts of the product's value proposition? It turned out people love this. They love the scent. They love the fact that it was great for the pet's skin to use the dry shampoo or to use the soap that Sit Stay Forever creates. And all of that would have taken hours or expensive tools. Now, there are tools at every price point, but what I love about ChatGPT is it's almost like the Swiss Army knife of marketing. You can use it to write things. You can use it to analyze your data if you're using GPT-4, and you can use it to do quick text analytics, which again is a part of data analysis that often can be a, a imprecise but it's really quick and easy. We found that it was actually quite accurate using GPT-4. And again, it, it's you've already got it. We're all already using chat GPT. So it's the perfect way of analyzing your data without having to invest in an additional tool. The plugin was free. And so it's intuitive, it's quick, it's easy. And we were able to give him some really solid data on what his customers loved about his product in, in two minutes. And so that's one of the ways in which I see ChatGPT revolutionizing marketing analytics. On the reporting side, it's a net positive because nobody out there is hankering for those jobs doing tedious manual data cleaning. You can use ChatGPT to clean data. One of my wonderful colleagues, Lauren Turner, um, I'm actually doing a study that's been funded by Harvard and Northeastern on how marketing executives are using ChatGPT. I just recently sat down with Lauren Turner and she's using it to clean data. Um, in order to then better analyze it, identify key trends, same as we did with sit stay forever and so all of those tedious tasks that no one wants to do are tailor-made for chat gpt so i don't think it's actually going to displace jobs as much again it's going to make us faster and more efficient in seeing the main trends in data well i'm relieved to hear you say that because i love chat gpt so i'm glad that others are too especially someone um like you who is coming in with all this expertise in marketing analytics. So it's okay. And I love the story that you share about using ChatGPT to review your reviews, essentially, and give you a recap on those. Um, so yes, there's so many other ways I'm sure that people are using ChatGPT. Are there any other um, um, marketing metrics that you're seeing people use in terms of ChatGPT? So um, it's also really good for reporting. A lot of times, however many dashboards we set up, people want to see an actual report, right? They want to have that PowerPoint or they want to have a quick write-up of what are the top trends you're seeing in the data. Using plugins with GPT-4, you can pull in data from like an Excel spreadsheet, for instance, have it have ChatGPT write up what are the main trends you're seeing. So for instance, click-through rates are down on your marketing automation, but they're up in your retargeting advertising. And it can create a quick report around that and actually even create charts, tables, and PowerPoint slides. So all of that, again, tedious reporting, not only is it good at doing text analytics, not only is it good at cleaning data, it can also do some of the sort of bread and butter everyday reporting that you have to do because again this is stuff where i'm not too worried about job displacement because if your only job is taking data and putting it into a powerpoint that's probably a pretty depressing job anyway and very entry level and 
there's so many more in interesting and strategic things you can do. I don't want to minimize the impact that this is going to have on people. But one of the things that I'm learning is that for some people, um, and my teaching, my research fellow, Megan, actually discovered this, is that for some organizations, they're actually becoming more likely to hire entry-level folks who they wouldn't give a chance to before, because empowered with chat GPT, even someone with entry-level skills can actually be that much more effective because a lot of times chat GPT will enhance their skills by adding in more powerful reporting, more powerful presentation creation skills that an entry-level person may not have. And so it's actually making people more likely to get entry-level jobs and for organizations to hire someone who maybe doesn't have a ton of skills, but it's okay to hire them now because ChatGPT will supplement those skills. And so it's actually opening doors for people trying to break into marketing. That's that's interesting. I uh, I I, uh, I wrote some automation myself. Uh, I don't know, thirty something years ago. That, that uh, I was told would uh, do away with a bunch of machinists. It was all numerically controlled uh, cutting of of, of metal. Uh, but what they ended up having to do was hire more machinists because uh, there was the uh, demand for 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 what they were making went up instead of down. They were bottlenecked before, so. I think automation, I think uh, chat uh, GPT might be doing the same thing. I think so too. I don't think it's going to, as part of the study that I'm doing, we've done a survey of marketing managers, VPs and CMOs, as well as um, individual contributors who are on a strategy or consulting level. And most, a, a slight but substantial majority of the survey respondents are saying that they think there's going to be a net gain in jobs, that this is going to be a job creator in marketing. Which jibes, DW, with what your experience was, that yes. you needed more machinists. Yes, we needed more more, more people. I wouldn't have predicted that. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, once you lower the, the barrier, I guess, to uh, productivity, uh, you get more of it. People want more of it. You know, Absolutely. you lower the cost of doing business as well. It increase the quality all at the same time. And speaking of all of that, um, let's move into our second topic, using data to make strategic decisions with all of this, um, you know, change around us. Can you kick us off on this topic, Christina? Yeah, I mean, it's such a broad topic. So, how do you use data to make strategic decisions? I think part of why I wanted to talk about that is that a lot of times we use data reactively or we use data to make very tactical decisions. Like let's A, B test a subject line and decide which one's going to be the better subject line. But you can, you can get so much more traction if you use data to make the really big strategic decisions. And it doesn't mean you have to necessarily even be collecting different data. So give you an example. Um, again, I'm gonna stick with the same client, partly because he's in the room and I wanna be as useful to him as possible. And also because I think it's nice to see how data has worked for a single organization over and over again. So one of the things we're doing at Husky Communications for Sit Stay Forever is we're also helping them with their SEO. 
And as part of SEO, we're using a very old fashioned form of data, something we've all been using for like 20 years or more, which is search data, right? Search volume data, how, uh, how many people are searching for one keyword versus another on Google every year, uh, every month every day. I mean, how much more commonplace can the data get? We've all been using it forever, but a lot of times we'll often use that to make minor SEO tweaks and there's no nothing wrong with doing that. In, in other words, just deciding to use one keyword or another. However, once we dug into the data for Sit Stay Forever, we found interestingly enough that a lot of the product's core value propositions that they've been marketing for a long time, for instance, that it's toxin-free or non-toxic, matters more for some products than for others. Like for instance, they make a non-toxic pet bed, that's really important for people. But what's not important, ironically, is they also make an organic cotton pet bed. And although the fact that it's non-toxic is really interesting to people who own pets, especially pets that maybe have some allergies, but really all pet owners, the fact that it's made of organic cotton, the number of people who search for organic um, pet beds is minimal in comparison to the number of people who search for non-toxic pet beds. So right there, we are all kind of conditioned, and I, I firmly believe in being environmentally sustainable, but we're all conditioned to think that organic is this buzzword that applies to every kind of product, right? It doesn't matter the product, you call it organic, people will want it. But when it comes to pet beds, apparently they actually want it to be non-toxic and it could be made out of synthetic. He's got a wonderful synthetic fabric pet bed that's non-toxic, it is eco-conscious, it is sustainable, but it's, you know, it's recycled polyester. It cannot be called um, organic. And people don't care about it being organic. They care about it being non-toxic. So that is not just a keyword level decision. That's not just about I'm going to tweak the words in an ad or I'm going to tweak the headline on a page or the title tag on a page. And I'm going to get more search traffic. That's really about what do the consumers want? How can I shape my product line to deliver the value to consumers that they care about? And what do consumers think of as important in my particular industry? That's a strategic decision. It's not different data, however. We're still looking at his SEO data. We're just using it more strategically or at least giving him the data that he can then use to strategically position the product. So this, this insight was reached by almost human intuition, right? Mm -hmm. and uh, that, if if oh, go ahead. you would have asked you know, GPT, you know, uh, the same question, you know, would, they have would it have reached the same conclusion? I, I really doubt it. I do too. Is there going to be a time when GPT can you come to those conclusions? Probably sooner rather than later. But right now, those strategic insights, you need to be a human being to make the, to draw those conclusions. We'll often have a real laugh in my SEO class around the weird suggestions that even some of the best SEO tools make as to what is a relevant keyword for a product. So for instance, we were doing an analysis of a beauty brand and they suggested because one of the lip balms that the brand has, has is called like Summer Fridays. Um, that they should try to compete with TGI Fridays. <laughs> right. 
That makes yeah makes I sense. Mean, not it's ChatGPT is not a person. It doesn't love its dog. It doesn't know how important it is to have a non-toxic dog bed. It can't come up with those um, conclusions. What it right. can do, however, is parse through terabytes and terabytes of data that is tedious for a human being to parse through. Right. Surface the major trends and the you as a human being go and look at it and then still you have to go just make the conscious decision to not just be making tactical reactive decisions of i'm going to tweak this keyword just to get a few more clicks and instead think about what's the value i'm delivering to the consumer that i can craft based on the data that is telling me consumers want x and not y i'll give you another example also for um sit stay forever um if we look at Again, their review data, we can see that people whose pets are struggling with a health issue are often their happiest customers. And so this tells us that maybe older pets are relevant. Um, older pet parents, um, pet owners are more relevant. People who have an older dog or cat are a target audience for them. That's a strategic decision of who can we target with our marketing. That's not necessarily something you're gonna see if you're looking at the data very tactically, whether you're using GPT or whether you yourself as a person are trying to surface insights and you're just looking at uh, the creative side, like how can this image be better or how can I come up with better keywords? That's not the big picture. The big picture is who are my customers and how can I better serve them with a better or more focused product line or more targeted product positioning? And that's where I think the data is super exciting. Right. So, so just to restate what you said, I, I think what you're saying is that if you do automatic uh, optimization, you may be optimizing something that shouldn't even be there. But and we've we've definitely seen a few of those cases for our, our clients is you're optimizing something that shouldn't even be there. Like you're tweaking um, the SEO on a page for a product that is kind of outside of what your customers are looking for. Yeah. Yeah. We call that polishing a rock. Polishing yeah. a rock. Yeah. And yeah. I think every company polishes rocks a lot. Yeah. Because automatic behavior. Yep. We don't have the data that tells us what is the rock and what is the gem. And, and I think that through ChatGPT, we can filter through that pile of data and find the rock versus the gem faster. Right. Yes. It's a great it's indexing tool. <laughs> ChatGPT helps us. Um, well, along those lines, let's get into our third topic before we get into some of these post-topic questions. Um, but the last one is effective data audits for ads and enrichment. So um, we'd love to hear your take on all of this. Could you kick us off, Christina? Yeah, I, I honestly, this is foundational. Even though it's our last topic, it's the first thing you should do if you're trying to get smarter about your data. Uh, whether you're using chat GPT, which I honestly think you should, or you're using your tried and true traditional analytics tools, or whether you're struggling with Excel, um, you first need to do a thorough data audit. And what that means is simply you need to understand what data your organization is collecting, what data they need but aren't collecting. So where are the gaps? And then how do you fill in those gaps? So those are the top three things that you need to know if you're going to be able to surface data for strategic insights. But then after that, once you've identified the data that you're collecting, 
both for legal reasons, for ethical reasons, and also just practical reasons, you need to then look into who's collecting this data, what department, where is it being stored, what are the tools that we're using to collect this data, how long are we retaining it, in, and how soon do we delete it, um, how is the data structured, and how are we using it? Where's that data feeding into? Those are the basics of a data audit. And there are more steps to that, but for marketing purposes, these are all really important. So I'll talk about why. First of all, most organizations are collecting, talk about polishing a rock. I know too what you're going to say. Go oh, oh, go ahead. No, no, no. I, say, I know what you're going to say. Go ahead. Most organizations are collecting data that they don't need, they're never going to use, and they're, they're hanging on to it because they've always collected that data. Um, it is completely irrelevant to me what hour of the day, for instance, you're placing an order on a small e-commerce site, unless there's something super anomalous about that data. Sure, the, the, the e-commerce system is going to automatically timestamp it, but I don't need to use that data for anything. It's not, generally speaking, for this organization, for sit, stay forever, going to help. For other organizations, it might be relevant. They might need to know that time data. Sit, stay forever, right now, it's not helping them in any way. So a lot of us, we have these tools that collect data that some other organization might love to have. We don't need it, but it's always gonna collect that data. We've always got that information. So you need to decide, are we collecting data we don't need to use? Um, and can we stop collecting that data in order to streamline things? Sometimes it's collected by default, in which case by your tools, you'll just live with it. Um, the other thing in terms of staying GDPR and California's Privacy Act compliant is you have to know who's touching your data, how often, who has access to within your organization. You want to minimize the number of people who have access to people's personal information, like their buying history, their address, um, their full name, their email, their other contact information, what we call PII, personally identifiable information. You want to minimize who has access to that within your organization. You want to make sure it's securely stored and you want to make sure that you're deleting it regularly. By law, you can't just hang on to it indefinitely. So you have to have a system for deleting it. You also have to have a system for deleting it or else you're just storing tons and tons of data going back 20 years. And you've become, I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, when my mother passed away, I found a bunch of boxes that she had inherited from her mother, my grandmother, and I found my family's phone bill from 1973, all of them, all the phone bills from 1973, meticulously sorted by month. This was in 2020. I can tell you categorically, I don't need a phone bill from 1973. Nobody does. I saved one out of historical interest. I didn't need a whole box. I didn't need bank statements going back to the 1980s. I didn't need my late grandfather's pay stubs from 1972, but my grandmother had saved all of them. A lot of organizations are in that same position. We're hoarding data because it's invisible, it's out of sight, it's out of mind, it's digital, right? But you're still paying for that storage, plus all of it's a liability because if it's somebody's personal information and that gets breached, it doesn't matter if it's old information their data has still been breached. So you need to have a firm handle on where are you collecting information from, how long are you storing it, and you also, again, access. So that's on the legal side and the consumer privacy side of things. Now, on the operational side of things, even though we're also co all collecting data we do not need, 
we're also not collecting data that we do need. So that's where getting the gaps identified are. Where do we lack information? Where if we had that, it would actually be extremely helpful to us. I'll give you an example of data enrichment. Um, I worked with an e-commerce company a few years ago where they had people's addresses um, and their names, but they knew nothing else about them. Now, I wouldn't recommend doing this in this privacy-centric day and age, but we did some data enrichment on it at the time where we were able to find out that for the zip codes where they were shipping out product, what is the average um, household income? We were able to find out what interests people have um, in terms of like what publications they're subscribing to. I'm not proud of it and I wouldn't do that again to find out people's you know likely age and income level. But on the zip code level, we were able to find out that their biggest customers were primarily, uh, and this was a consumer product in highly affluent neighborhoods, very far outside of major metropolitan areas. And that helped them a lot with understanding their customer profile. And we were able to do that through data enrichment. They knew that they needed to know more about their customers than they had. They were only collecting names, addresses, and email addresses and phone numbers. And so through data enrichment, we were able to fill in those gaps. But first, you need to identify what those gaps are. Is it that you don't know enough about your audience's psychographics, what they're interested in? Do you not know their demographics, like age and income level? And then try to find the least intrusive way of enriching that data and you want to be clear and transparent that you're doing data enrichment. You want to let your consumers know that you might be going to data brokerages to find out more about them and give them the option to opt out because that's the ethical thing to do. Um, However, data enrichment is a really critical part of marketing because we all have gaps. It's not the only way to fill in those gaps, but it is a good way of finding out more about consumers when you have some, some touch points like name, address, email address, phone number, and be able to find out more about those consumers in the aggregate. And it is a not, we did it in an anonymized way and a anonymized way, try to say that quickly three times, so that we didn't know anyone's particular, what they subscribe to in terms of magazines or publications or where they like to go on vacation. We did an aggregate profile and built a persona around consumers based on what their likely income levels are and ages are. So we didn't try, we tried to keep it as privacy centric as possible. I would still reconsider doing that nowadays. Um, but I'm still a big believer in data enrichment as long as you're transparent and careful about it. A lot of times though, we don't need data enrichment only, or we don't need it at all to fill in the gaps. Sometimes we're not collecting the right data. So for instance, maybe we aren't collecting competitive data. We're, we're moving along, we're not looking at our competitors, and we aren't gathering information about what our reference groups, our peers are doing, which is impacting our ability to stay on trend in the marketplace. I'll give you an example with Sit Stay Forever. We did an SEO audit of their website to see how they're positioned in search. That forced us to identify who their competitors were. And that allowed us to see what their competitors were doing in terms of their content marketing, in terms of their social media, and establish benchmarks. For instance, 
creating user-generated content, creating contests around pets, using the product that are fun and engaging and friendly and posting those to Instagram. Really table stakes things, but things we wouldn't necessarily we would know that they're important because brands tend to do that, but we wouldn't know which competitors are excelling at it and whether those are their most relevant competitors or not. We found that um, it is e-commerce brands that are doing the best naturally at this kind of thing. Many of them are small brands, just like Sit, Stay, Forever, and that allowed us to understand that as a small brand, that direct relationship with their consumer is super important. So competitive data is an example of things that people sometimes just don't gather. Um, data enrichment is not even a part of that. You can go out and use SEO tools. You can use competitive analysis tools like SimilarWeb. Uh, you can use even U.S. Department of Commerce information or SEC um, filings if you've got a publicly traded competitor. So identify those gaps, figure out what data you're not collecting, and then find out where you can start to collect that data in the most privacy-centric, in the most accurate, and in the most cost-effective and efficient way that you can. That's all part of a data audit as well. And data enrichment is a part of that, but at the end of the day, it's only a very small part of it. A lot of times people find that they need to change their tool stack. They need to get rid of tools that are redundantly collecting the same data. And we've all done that. We've got three tools all collecting more or less the same thing, and we're paying for all of them. And then at the same time, there's major data that we aren't collecting in the slightest. So a data audit is critical. You really are not being smart about your data unless you understand how are you collecting it, where are you collecting it from, are you getting all the data that you need, and are you compliant with the law and with basic ethics and consumer expectations of privacy while you're doing it. If you're not hitting those four benchmarks of knowing where am I getting it from, who's handling the data, what are our gaps, and are we being ethical, um, you're probably going to be making significant mistakes along the way. Wow. That was a lot to take in there. What, what's your yeah. take there, DW? No, that's that, that's like a mini course uh, right yeah. there. Yeah, uh, I would. Uh, as you said uh, before, you explained it all that this would probably be step one when you walk into a, a new a new uh, client. Basically, this is the first thing you would do is you know yes. what data you're uh, storing, uh, not storing, and uh, not deleting or deleting. You know, um, I. Uh, I used to uh, do some work for uh, a, a medical insurance review company that would find errors on, on uh, hospital bills and things like this. And uh, we were very concerned about privacy. And there's nothing more, more private than, than health insurance uh, items. Uh, but we found that the aggregating at a zip code was, was relatively safe up to a point. Uh, so uh, um, you said you were, you were giving attributions to a consumers uh, within a zip code, basically, right? Yeah. If I understood you properly. Uh, and if, if that's the case, you say this is still uh, too uh, invasive? I think that's the part I would still feel comfortable with. If you're just looking at the average 
for instance, income or buying trends by zip code. Where I think I would reconsider what we did was getting into the level of, for this set of email addresses, what are some of the interests of the people with this, these email addresses? Like, I got you. are they gardeners? Are they avid gourmet chefs? I wouldn't do that kind of data enrichment nowadays. And I know people who do, and I they're not terrible people, but I feel like if consumers are trusting me with their personal identifiable information, they're probably also trusting me not to go and take that information, take it to a data broker and find out everything else about them that they did not volunteer to me. I got you. So our, we uh, we call that third party data. Yes. Uh, and and uh, I would suspect that that uh, your uh, clients have a lot of first party data that, that they can already work with, right? Exactly. And honestly, even if you have, even if the gaps in your data include third party data and you're very tempted to go looking for um, that data enrichment, think about whether you yourself would feel comfortable if someone pulled that data about you. And as marketers, we're probably a little warped in our perspective. Because I honestly, if I've done it and you know that about me, you could target me with that information. Um, probably, on the other hand, I am not, I'm not typical. So um, I don't know. I, I would say at the end of the day, it, you have to think about would I feel comfortable with this as a marketer, but also understand that most consumers do not have a marketer's perspective and are probably much more sensitive about the third-party data that's out there circulating about them. Yes. I, I, I agree. Yeah. Definitely. Well, um, anything more either of you would like to touch on that before we get into our post-topic uh, question? I think we might have time for one of them at least. Um, but if not, I'm going to transition then. So Christina, if you could go back in a time when you first came into the marketing industry, what is the number one piece of advice you would give yourself? Huh? You know what? I think the number one piece of advice I would give myself is don't waste time on dead end jobs. I think. I was, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, and I think we were raised by a generation where you worked in the same place for 40 years, and your company you worked for, you could trust them with your career. Mm -hmm. And so we did a lot of paying our dues. I think the, the watershed for me in my career was when I realized nobody is responsible for your career and nobody's going to support you the way you are going to support yourself. Even good organizations are not going to invest in you as much as you invest in yourself. And I look at every, I looked at every career opportunity as a way to build up my portfolio so that I could move towards the career that I wanted. And this is what I try to teach my students. And this is what I try to inculcate in all of our programs that I do with Husky Communications at Northeastern. And what I try to do for my interns at ThoughtLight as well is make sure that everything that you do actually is purposefully building towards your dream career, because just, you know, and that doesn't mean we don't all sort of, you know, take on 
the work that needs to be done to show that we are a team player. But don't expect that dead-end job to pay off. That's the advice I would give myself. And I don't think it's even just applicable to, um, to marketers. I think it's for all of us. I, so if I understood you uh, properly, you basically have a clear plan for your career, whatever it is. Uh, in your case, it has to do with marketing. But um, then you select the jobs that, that uh, build up the experience and the knowledge base that you need to achieve this, right? Uh, you may even work for free and, and you know, early on uh, to, to get this experience uh, versus yeah. a job that would pay you, but it's a dead end job. You know, obviously you have to pay the bills, though. Mm -hmm. I, I also have a really strong issue with people working for free because I think that it, it reinforces the privilege of people who can afford to work for free. And um, it, it okay. creates impression that people are going to be willing to work for free. I have volunteered, however, I, I spent seven wonderful years on the board of the American Marketing Association Boston chapter. Clearly, I was a volunteer. I was their VP of social media, their founding VP of social media. I got to do so much cool and interesting stuff. So yeah, I mean, if you can find those plum volunteer opportunities, but certainly, I mean, unpaid internships, not everybody can afford to do them. Right. I can say also take on the extra responsibility. So this study that I'm conducting on how marketers, marketing leaders are using chat GPT, um, I got funding from Harvard to pay my teach my research assistant. I, on the other hand, am doing it completely in my own non-copious spare time. So because you know, authoring this study is helpful both just to raise the profile of my business and my work and hopefully sell more copies of my book, but also I find it very interesting and I know that I'm going to learn a lot from it. So that's my other piece of advice is always find the opportunities where you're learning because you never regret that and it always helps you grow. That's yeah, a so, great advice. And the message is, is you know, uh, just doing really well at, at, at your dead-end job is a bit like polishing a rock, isn't it? Exactly. That's the theme, isn't it? Stop polishing yes. rocks. Stop polishing <laughs> rocks. You know, no one's ever said that on Deconstructing Data. So thanks for making sure that we got that for episode We've eight. got the quote that you can put in those graphics. Uh -huh. You know, with just two minutes left, we have to know, what are your favorite technology tools in your tech stack? I'm honestly loving GPT-4 um, kitted out with a bunch of the great plugins, like the one that scrapes reviews and does the data analytics on it, the text analytics. I'm a huge fan of those free tools like um, Google Search Console and Google Analytics. I'm, I'm a big believer also in keeping it simple. So Looker Studio to create um, dashboards or Tableau. I love Tableau. I'm a huge fan of Qualtrics for doing market research and surveys. Um, I have to say otherwise, though, I they're saying what what is your favorite technology is almost like saying what's your favorite food. You may feel like pizza at dinner time, and pizza is also a great cold, delicious breakfast food, but there might be times a day you don't feel like it. Maybe you want oatmeal for breakfast. And so I always say the best technology is the one that helps you meet your data analytics goals, your marketing metrics goals, gather the information that you want at the price point that you can have and that also that your team enjoys using. 
There's nothing worse than when you impose top down a technology that nobody wants to use and that has a learning curve that people just don't want to embrace. Find the tools that your team likes to use and everyone's going to be not just happier, but a lot more productive. Right. We only have a few minutes, right? Uh, I, I promise uh, we'd give you a chance to plug uh, um, a few things and we haven't done that, have we? You have not. So I'm going to just go ahead and give some plugs. So first of all, my book from Kogan Page, Marketing Metrics, is available on Amazon as well as from the publisher. Um, the publisher was recently running, I don't know if it's still active, a 30% off sale. So grab a copy of Marketing Metrics. And if you do it from Amazon, please do leave a review if you can. Um, if you reach out to me and you mail me a copy, I will sign it for you or send you a book plate that you can use that's signed. So grab a copy of Marketing Metrics by Christina Inge from Kogan Page. And if you're looking to further your education or your career, please do consider coming to Northeastern. We have online programs. You don't have to be in the Boston area. We also have campuses all over the world. I have been teaching in the corporate and organizational communications and the digital media programs, master um, in for many years and it's hands-on and just the greatest group of people my students are wonderful that you're ever going to meet so that's a great opportunity right there now if you're an underrepresented founder and especially if you're in the new england area northeastern wants to hear from you we have a great program founded by my colleague francesca grippa as well as my colleague carl zangrel called the northeastern lab for inclusive entrepreneurship and we work with veterans we work with um BIPOC founders, we work with women founders in order to help them get their small businesses off the ground. And that can include free marketing help. It can include free training. And so go ahead and apply to the Northeastern Lab for Inclusive Entrepreneurship if you're an underrepresented founder and you're at the early stages of starting your small business. Yeah. And then finally, if you need someone to do your marketing for you, I and my team at Thoughtlight Digital are available for hire. We don't just help people in the Boston area. So if you go to our website, thoughtlight.net, that's thought as in thinking, light as in light bulb, and you reach out to us, we have a set up and go program that's $200 off, and we can help you get your digital marketing tech stack off the ground. But we also help people with their branding, their social media, their content, their SEO their advertising strategy and their e-commerce strategy. In fact, we were recently named by Design Rush, one of the top e-commerce marketing agencies. And so we'd love to help you over here at Thoughtlight if you're in the market for a marketing agency. That is incredible, Christina. That's so impressive. Absolutely. And in closing, Christina, I know that was already a lot, but would you like to tell listeners how they can find you after the show if they want to reach out? Absolutely. So um, I, hopefully you'll be able to drop a link as well. You can go to my website for my company, thoughtlight.net, and you can fill out the contact form or email us at info at thoughtlight.net and reach out to me. If you're listening to this on LinkedIn and you want to drop me a LinkedIn connection, just say that you heard me on this on this podcast, and I'd be happy to reach out to you and connect with you there as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And for anyone listening, um, we would hope you would check out BeatX's Omni IQ. 
And what that is, is you can just simply, first of all, go to bdex.com, or if you're watching, you can see this on the QR code right here on the screen. Um, but if you're listening on podcasts later on, you can go to bdex.com, click the try for free button, or um, like I said, use the QR code, and you can create an OmniIQ account. And once you create an account, you can simply upload a CSV file of your first party customer data and get you know, gender, birth year, and household income analytics on your data. No credit card required. We don't do anything with your data. It's simply for you to learn about your audience. And we would love to hear from you. <laughs> if you would, we would love to hear from our audience and let we'd love to know if there's someone you would like to have on deconstructing data, let us know. Please reach us at info at bdex.com. Share your qualitative data with us so we can make it better for you. And DW, did you want to say something about OmniIQ? Well, well, uh, basically, it's 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 uh, machine learning for the masses. Uh, it's it's uh, making technology easier, I guess. Uh, to to quote Christina, uh, you know, more friendly, I guess. But uh, most most small companies can't can't do their own machine learning, really. So this is a very easy way of doing it. Absolutely, and and you guys are doing some really great work with it, DW. And since we have you here, do you want to mention anything more about OmniIQ? Well, OmniIQ is is really a, a uh, I'm say a, like a subset of, of a suite of APIs that we have too. If you want, you can write your own front end, your own UX, and and um, you know you uh, use, use us to power your 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 site basically. So you can do machine learning through APIs, uh, audience building through APIs, and uh, and I think that's our real strength uh, in the marketplace. Absolutely. And you can try it all for free, like I said. And then if you want to upgrade to find out more, just let us know. But we really appreciate you coming on the show with us today, Christina and audience members. We hope to hear from you and we hope to see you all next week. And until then, I'll close this out with a video.